Judith Curry. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you, Rasmus. I look forward to our conversation. Well, so do I. I've been uh, very excited to have you on. This is a topic that uh, t- today is very, it's a very sensitive topic to talk about. For some reason, uh, you're not allowed to question question it, and uh, I'm sure you can explain some of that throughout the conversation. So please tell the audience who you are and why you uh, why they should listen to you on this topic. Well, um, I'm Judith Curry. I spent most of my career in academia and universities. Most recently, um, I spent 13 years as chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, I retired my position, my faculty position in 2017. I'm currently um, president of Climate Forecast Applications Network, a small company um, that I founded. And I'm working in the private sector um, with other other businesses, um, government agencies, and so on to help them manage weather and climate risks. Um, the reason I left the university is I felt that it was too group thinking too much cancel culture and, you know, there were certain policy relevant topics that you were expected to have a politically correct stance on. And one of those was climate change. And I decided I did not want to work in that environment. My personal and professional integrity wouldn't allow me to work in that kind of environment. So I left the university and now in the private sector, um, I'm people, I I have a lot more freedom in what I'm able to work on and what I'm able to say and what I'm able to do. Um, And I speak out on climate change. I have a blog called Climate Etc. JudithCurry.com. I'm active on Twitter at CurryJA. And I also have a book that is forthcoming called Climate Uncertainty and Risk which will be published on June 6th. Awesome, awesome. So like I said in the beginning, uh, this topic of climate, I don't know what they call it these days. Is it climate change, global warming, or... Uh, climate they, catastrophe. Climate, climate catastrophe, climate yes. Crisis. <laughs> climate crisis, exactly. So yeah. the reason... Uh, because I've heard this for many years now that, you know, we are destroying our planet with our CO2 emissions and uh, a lot of other things that we do. Uh, and it's a huge emergency. It's a big crisis, uh, which sounds very scary, of course. Uh, but I always get a little bit suspicious when there's something in the mainstream media and from authorities that you are no longer allowed to question. As soon as you question it, it's just like uh, a recent example is the pandemic. If if you question the vaccines, you're automatically an anti-vaxxer, even though you might have taken a ton of other vaccines. And I feel it's kind of the same with, with climate change. If you ask questions, you're automatically a climate denier or, you know, any other term for conspiracy theorists. Uh, so that makes me ask more questions. So from what I he- have heard and I still hear is that the the scientists, are they all agree, 97% of them agree that I'm, I'm actually not 100% sure on what they agree on. I, I think it's that that's humans are causing a majority of the warming of the planet. Would okay, that well, be you're correct? okay, well, you're absolutely correct about, well, I'm not sure about what the 97% actually agree on. Well, at the end of the day, it's not very much. Um, everybody agrees that the climate's been warming for over 100 years. Everyone agrees that we're adding CO2 into the atmosphere through burning fossil fuels and other activities. Um, also, Carbon dioxide has an infrared emission spectrum, which acts to warm the planet. 
Okay, beyond that, there's not much disagree. There's not much agreement, particularly about the most consequential issues, like how much of the recent warming is natural versus human caused. How much warming can we expect in the 21st century? Is warming dangerous? Will humans overall be better off if we stop using fossil fuels? I mean, these are the questions that there is no agreement. Okay, at all. There's a lot of disagreement as well. There should be. And the 97% has been, the original 97% study was really a group of activists, scientists, and their students and whatever, who counted the abstracts of scientific papers, and they counted any abstract that assumed global warming was human caused or talked about it or dealt with the technology such as cook stoves for South Asia that might be relevant to help solve global warming. They counted all sorts of crazy things as, you know, supporting global warming. And these were just abstracts of papers. Now, President Obama tweeted had a, a tweet that went viral and said 97% of scientists agree, you know, that humans are causing dangerous climate change. Well, in the first place, the paper was about abstracts, not about scientists agreeing. Okay, it was just a peculiar way that they classified abstracts, and there was nothing about dangerous in the original paper. So President Obama was one of the first practitioners of what I will call consensus entrepreneurship. You know, you say there's a climate consensus and then you extend it in many different directions to all sorts of different topics, you know, about which there is, you know, no consensus at all. But the climate consensus is purposely left very vague so people can infer that it means whatever you want it to mean. Yeah, that's the picture that I have also, that everything that we hear is very, very vague. That's that's why I'm having you on, to ask you the questions, to, to really get to know, you know what is going on. Uh, but in your experience then, because uh, I'm sure you know a lot of scientists and, and you've met a lot of scientists throughout your career, what do they think? Like, is there... Is there many of them that actually agree with the mainstream narr narrative from media and authorities? or? Okay, many do and many don't. I mean, many mm -hmm. people who are working, uh, most climate scientists work in very narrow areas on a very narrow specialized topic, like the microphysics of clouds or the geochemistry of the ocean or something like that. And, and they don't, and the only way they, they don't really have a big picture and a lot of their support of the consensus is through secondhand, you know, they're listening to what other people say. They're, they see the writing on the wall. They see that it's beneficial for their career to go along with this rather than to disagree with it, or they decide to keep their head down. But there's a large population of scientists who do not at all support what's going on with the IPCC. Um, so there, there's a there's a broad there's a lot of disagreement and there's a lot of things that we don't know, and trying to manufacture all that into some sort of consensus has been very bad, both for the science scientific process and also for the policy process. Overconfidence, um, if you turn out to be wrong, is a bad thing for policy deliberations. We should give them you know, provide them with a clear understanding of what we know, what we don't know, and what we can't know. And that hasn't been done. It's just one big overconfident consensus that they get presented with. Hmm. And the IPCC, uh, from my understanding, the the data that um, we base this this whole theory on is from the IPCC, mostly, and it's some sort of models. Uh, could you explain that? Okay. Well, the IPCC is a periodic um, assess. They do periodic assessments of the observations, and they also coordinate um, some 
climate mo specific climate modeling experiments. There's about maybe 25 institutions worldwide who use, you know, who have developed these global climate models and they run specific experiments using scenarios specified by the IPCC and so on. But um, these climate models simply are not fit for purpose. I mean, they're great tools for trying to, for scientists to use to research and try to understand the climate and how processes vary under different forcing conditions. But they're not useful as prediction machines. They can't really clarify regional climate variability because they don't um, get the ocean, large-scale ocean circulations correct. They can't predict volcanic eruptions. They can't predict solar variability. Um, you, you know, there's all sorts of deficiencies. There's a huge amount of uncertainty what we call the climate sensitivity as to how sensitive the climate is to a doubling of carbon dioxide. And estimates vary by a factor of three. Okay, So it's like a 300% uncertainty in the oh, climate wow. models in terms of, you know, how fast the climate would respond um, to an increase in CO2. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty and these climate models have been way oversold, have been way oversold. And even climate scientists are backing off from the climate models. In the most recent assessment report, the sixth assessment report, um, they downgraded the climate models, you know, noting that some of them are just running way too hot. Um, and this was remarked on. And so they downgraded the use of climate models in the sixth assessment report, which I thought was quite significant. I mean, it was moving in the right direction, but I mean, even in some countries, they've admitted, um, you know, climate model simulations as being valid evidence, you know, in court proceedings. <laughs> That's, you know, fairly ludicrous because they're just not fit for most of the purposes for what they're used for. Mm, I see. I'm going to ask you really, probably to you, a very stupid question, but... I'm a little bit confused on how how do we even know that CO2 warms the planet? Because I heard, uh, and this might be completely wrong, but I heard from someone, I can't remember who it was, that we've had periods uh, in the past where it's been colder on the planet, but CO2 levels have been higher than they okay, are right well now. Okay, well, CO2 is not the only, is far from the only determinant of climate, and it's not even the most important one. So mm -hmm. all other things being equal, if you increase the CO2, then you will overall warm the planet. By how much, we don't know. There's a lot of disagreement, but we know the, the sign is in the direction of warming. Um, that said, there's a lot of other things going on in the climate system that could counteract that warming. It could be solar variations or large-scale ocean circulations or geologic pro processes, including volcanoes. So there's a lot of other things that happen in the climate system. And, you know, the big issue is, you know, to what extent or is it at all is the CO2-driven warming dominating over natural climate variability? And so that's an unanswered question. Because hmm. if you listen to the the mainstream narrative, it, it if you only look at that, it would seem like everything that is changing on the planet, temperatures, weather, you name it, is because of us driving cars, uh, flying and, and things like this. It, 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 I mean, it, it looks like that is the sole reason for everything that's going on. Oh, I know. And, it, and it's ridiculous. If somehow we were successful in eliminating CO2 emissions, say by 2050, um, what would happen to the climate? Well, not much. And we probably wouldn't notice anything until the 22nd century. I mean, natural weather and climate variability is very strong. 
the oceans and the ice sheets have long memory. Um, they would still continue responding for a long time and so forth and so on. And even if you believe the climate models, it would only be if we turned off the um, CO2 emissions by 2050, um, we might slow down the warming by a few tenths of a degree by the end of the 21st century. And hmm. yeah, this is even if you believe the climate models. Yeah, I see. I see. And you mentioned the, uh, the what are they called? The, the big ice sheets, uh, I guess, in the northern hemisphere and the, the southern one as well. Uh, are they... Uh, are they melting? Okay. Um, the Greenland ice sheet has been melting since about 1993. Um, the melting peaked around 2010 to 2012, and it slowed down. There's evidence that this is dominated really by the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation. We've been in a warm period of the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation since 1995. And during the previous warm period in the 30s and 40s, you also saw melting of Greenland. Um, so this is, a, you know, plays a big role in the melting of Greenland. Um, is warming causing much? You know, it's hard to know. Also, the Greenland melting responds quite a bit to whether there's clouds in the summertime or not. And that has to do more with weather patterns. So there's a lot of things going on with the um, Greenland ice sheet. Um, now, with regards to Antarctic, the main Antarctic um, ice sheet for the main part of the continent really isn't changing. Uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is a smaller one, is the one that's of concern. This is a marine ice sheet. If you were to take away the ice sheet, the ground would be well below sea level. Okay, but it's got a big bunch of ice on top of it. And it's unstable because it's a marine ice sheet. And so it moves. You know, it's very dynamic, so it moves. And you can also melt it from below. These ice sheets hang out over the ocean. You can melt it from below. So if sea level rises, if the ocean water is warm, you can melt it from below. So there are some potentially destabilizing, you know, warm is, warming is probably, you know, may not be, if the West Antarctic ice sheet were to collapse, I mean, global warming is unlikely to be the cause. It's probably more related to internal ice dynamics, uh, geothermal heat flux from below um, the ice sheet, or some changes in ocean circulation. So with regards to the ice sheet, I mean, the West Antarctic ice sheet is the one to worry about in terms of if something bad were to happen, if that were to collapse partially, I mean, it could substantially raise sea level rise, but it would happen over the course of several centuries. Um, mm. But it could just as, if it were to happen, it's just as likely to happen from geologic processes as it is from global warming. Mm. But it's un unlikely to have much of an impact on the timescale of the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the sea levels uh, rising. There's a few things there that make me question it uh, even more because I hear things like Florida might be underwater, uh, you know, pretty soon. Uh, there's a few other cities. I think London is pretty close to sea level, I guess, and uh, I'm sure there's many more. But if if that was really the case and people were really worried about it, why are then you know, many rich people, successful people are buying, you know, houses on the beach and the, the banks are still giving out loans to sell property okay, you know, well, in these well, places. It sounds ludicrous to me if you think that the, the okay, town well, is going well, to be on the water. You know, has, since it started coming out of the little, the, the little ice age it ended in the mid 1800s, and since then, sea level has been rising. 
Okay, so see the slow creep for about the last hundred years, it's maybe been eight inches overall in terms of sea level rise. Um, and in recent decades, sea level rise has been rising about three millimeters per year. So if you put two pennies on top of each other, that's three millimeters. Okay, so that's um, not very much. Um, the issue with some cities, okay, Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, I mean, is sinking like crazy, like at about 30 times the rate of sea level rise. And the reason for that is that they've withdrawn a lot of groundwater, which compacts the soil and causes it to sink, and just the sheer weight of everything they've built on top of it. So they've actually moved the capital of Indonesia inland. Okay, it's no longer Jakarta. I can't remember the name of it. So there are some places that are really sinking fast, but this is mostly um, due to groundwater withdrawal, land use, or some natural geologic factor. Now, in Florida, Florida isn't really sinking. I mean, it has sea level rise. I mean, sea level is, is creeping up, but like a big portion of the land in Florida is below six feet in elevation, so it's really low. Okay, so, I mean, it, it, it is a challenge. Um, now, the Dutch have been dealing with sea level rise for centuries, and there are parts of the Netherlands that are as much as seven feet <laughs> below sea level, okay, and almost the entire country is below sea, sea level, and they've engineered it with dikes and everything else, and it's been estimated that 30% of the Dutch GDP goes to protecting against, you know, the encroaching sea. So it can be managed. Um, but there's a lot of things going on besides warming-induced sea level rise. I mean, the places that are most vulnerable to sea level rise are actually because they're sinking owing mm -hmm. to coastal engineering, land use, withdrawal of groundwater, whatever. Yeah, that, that's very, very interesting. So um, when I talk to people who are what I would call climate alarmists or climate activists, call them whatever, what some of them would say is it's better that we act as, like, I guess I would explain it like, if we don't act and, and what we're saying is correct, it would be a huge disaster. It would be catastrophic for the planet. Okay, well, here, here's what the biggest disaster would be, the biggest disaster scenario. Let's say the alarmists are right about how much warming we can expect, that it's really going to be bad. The worst position we could be in is to have our electricity supply driven by wind and solar, which is inadequate for protecting us, and to, and to have our energy supply dependent on the weather itself. Okay, it makes no sense. I mean, hydropower, you have droughts, you have all sorts of issues. Extreme weather events can hamper wind and solar. You can have these long, multi-week uh, wind droughts where the wind doesn't blow at all. I mean, to me, this is the worst case scenario to be stuck with a completely inadequate electric power system because if we have electricity, we can protect ourselves. We have air conditioning, we have vertical farming, we have desalination plants, all these other things that we can use to protect ourselves. And also, if we have abundant, cheap electricity, we're going to be pr more prosperous and have more wealth, which also, you know, provides the resources for protecting us from whatever the climate might hold, be it natural or human caused. So to me, urgently rushing into destroying our energy infrastructure and replacing it with wind and solar which are totally inadequate for the electric power system, but also have very adverse um, 
environmental impacts, including massive land use required, um, to me, this is not a recipe for any kind of protection. Um, unless, you know, if you want to get rid of fossil fuels, that's one thing, but come up with a good solution. Um, the next generation nuclear power plants look quite good. Advanced geothermal is looking quite good. I mean, there are other solution, potential solutions out there. Um, wind and industrial scale solar plants, those are not the solutions. Hmm. I want to come back to that topic of, of energy and what we can do better. But before that, so uh, let's say that the uh, climate activists are right and it, it gets warmer at, I don't know, how many degrees are they uh, saying? Well, at this that... point, another a degree and a half, uh, maybe another degree and a half we're looking at for the Far remainder. Fahrenheit of the, uh, or Celsius? Celsius. So it would Celsius. be more like three degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so if that were to happen in the next, I don't know, doesn't matter, 50, 60, 70 years, why is that so dangerous for us? Well, well that's the weakest part of their, the whole argument. It's not dangerous. Um, in the U.S., people are leaving northern states and moving to southern states, particularly Florida, Texas, Arizona, because they don't like cold winters. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> I, I've been I've been joking and saying I, I hope that climate change comes because Sweden is pretty cold, you know. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh yeah. you know, and you know, the climate has always changed, it always will. It's not you know, it's changing relatively slowly and well within the envelope of natural climate variability. Um I mean, there's so much year-to-year -year variation with El Nino and La Nina years and whatever that, you know, the slow creep of climate change mostly happens unnoticed and it can easily be normalized in terms of, you know, how we adapt and everything else. So I don't think it's, you know, it's just not dangerous. And the only way you can make this dangerous is if you um, attribute every extreme weather event to fossil fuel emissions. So every time you have a hurricane or a flood or a heat wave or um, whatever, they blame it on global warming. Well, it's conceivable that for some of these events, warming might make it incrementally worse, but against the backdrop of natural weather and climate variability, you can't, you can't even really separate out the signal. And even the IPCC has low conf finds little change, has low confidence and whatever. Um, so there's just no basis for blaming extreme weather on fossil fuels. In fact, at least in the US, the weather was much, much worse in the 1930s and even the 1950s than it is, than it has been in the 21st century. So there's a lot of regional, natural, weather and climate variability that, you know, it just happens. And you can't blame, you can't blame this on fossil fuel emissions. You know, theoretically for some event types, you might get a small signal, but you mm -hmm. can't discern it from the observations because there's too much natural variability. Mm. So, so, are the extreme weather, um, what, would I, what would I call it, the hurricanes, the fires, are, are they actually increasing at the rate as we're being shown? Or, or do, no. do, does that just depend on the time scale that you look at? Because oh, they yeah, might yeah. be increasing in the last 50 years, but if you go back 500 years, maybe that's kind of normal. Well, okay, even if you go back to like 1980, most of them show no increase. The hurricanes show no increase. Um, floods show no increase. Um, heat waves show an increase, but cold events show a decrease, but it's a small increase for the heat waves. And in the U.S., far and away, the worst heat waves were in the 1930s, not in the 21st mm -hmm. century. So even if you go back, to like 1900, 
it's very hard to, you know, find wide, you know, widespread trends over large regions in any kind of weather event where they would be seen to be worse. There's so much multi-decadal natural variability in the extreme weather events caused by changes in these large-scale ocean circulation regimes. So, I mean, you can't see it. Now, now the 1970s and 1980s were relatively quiet. So if this is your reference point, okay, (laughs) then things do look worse. There does look like a trend. But if you go back to the 50s and the 30s, no, a lot of weather events were worse during those periods. And is this something that the scientists agree on? Yeah, but they still cherry pick in the IPCC reports. They still cherry pick it by only talking about since 1970, you know, we've seen this. Yeah, yeah. And then you're left to infer that it must be caused by um, fossil fuel emissions. Yeah. And then climate models don't predict these extreme events. They don't resolve them. So all the projections about them getting worse are based on toy models and all sorts of other kinds of inferences. Um, you know, it, it, it's just very flimsy. It, all, all of this is weakly justified. That's um, kind of scary if that's the case, that if you look at, if you watch the news or if you follow any mainstream media, really, it it looks like the opposite of what you're saying. It looks like, like I mentioned before, everything that's happening is our fault for driving, you know, petrol cars well, and, uh, yeah. If you re- refer to the IPCC, mm-hmm. they aren't too alarmist. If you look at the summary for policymakers, this is where they cherry pick it and only talk about since 1970 or something like that. But if you look at the main IPCC reports, you know, thousands of pages uh, for the working group one, the physical science basis, there's a lot of good information there. It's not complete. And I don't agree with all of their conclusions. And there's certain things that they choose to ignore. But overall, the sixth assessment report is pretty good. But quoting the IPCC is now something that's done by the so-called skeptics. Okay, the alarmists find the IPCC too tame. Okay, and they're off um, spouting off in all sorts of different directions, saying things that are very weakly supported and, you know, weakly justified. So the IPCC, at least the working group one, the AR6 working group one report was pretty good. The working group two and working group three reports were not um, this time. But... um, you know, there's no basis for for alarm. Um, you know, you can extrapolate and worry about worst case scenarios, and then you have to talk about well, how well justified are these? And you know, pretty speculative. And you say, well, sh- shouldn't we just try to be better safe than sorry? Well, you know, if you're trying to decide whether to cross a street and a car's coming or not, it's easy to it doesn't cost you anything to wait an extra 15 seconds until the car passes by. <laughs> but in the mm-hmm. case of what we're talking about here, we have to tear down our entire energy and transportation infrastructure and not to mention screw up our agricultural production um, in a misguided attempt to eliminate CO2 emissions that we think we're going to control the climate. I mean, we can't control the climate any more than we can could control the COVID-19 epidemic. Thinking we can control these extremely complex situations, I mean, we are fooling ourselves in a very dangerous way. Hmm, I see. And talking about agriculture, what about the cows? Because now we need to stop eating meat is what I'm, I'm being told because the cows are farting or burping or whatever it is that they're doing. Okay, here's the issue. We don't understand the atmospheric methane budget very well. Um, for 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 a couple of decades, atmospheric methane was declining. 
And then in the last decade or so, it started increasing again. And we don't quite know what's going on. One explanation is that um, methane doesn't last very long in the atmosphere um, because it gets broken down by chemical reactions. So by changing, by reducing pollution, changing the atmospheric chemistry, we're not breaking down methane as fast as we used to. That's one explanation. And I think that mm. certainly is an element of it. There are a lot of natural sources of methane. Um, the one source of methane that it makes sense to manage is um, associated with natural gas exploration and processes. I mean, we should try to plug up those methane lakes. But, you know, messing with agriculture, our food supply and we're talking about that's only a, a small fraction, livestock. Okay, cultivation of rice releases a lot of methane to the atmosphere, and that's you know a natural thing. So, if we can come up with um, some process, some better agricultural processes that would reduce methane emissions, that would probably help you know, at the 2% level <laughs> in terms of this right. overall issue. Uh, but in the absence of that, let's not screw up our food supply. I mean, then we will really, you know, people people in developing countries are going to die um, if, if the global food supply is screwed up. Yeah. Um, we say, you know, in the U.S. and Europe, oh, well, we'll get our food from somewhere. Uh, yeah, if we pay enough, we probably can but people who are, you know, living on the margins and the, the, okay, the U, for example, the U.S. Um, spends 40% of its farmland on growing corn for ethanol, you know, which provides 10% wow. of our, our gasoline. Okay, as a result, the price of corn, which gets in uh, Central America, has skyrocketed, you know, because the corn supply for for export has diminished. Um, in the UK, they, they grow um, rapeseed, um, sunflower seeds for, and they use that for cooking oil, canola oil, sunflower oil, but now that's being used for transportation fuel. And over the winter, there was a huge shortage of cooking oil. Okay particularly in the UK, because they were selling this all just to be burnt. I mean, does this make any kind of sense? Um, so messing, you know, we should not be messing with the food supply. Biofuel is a really bad source of fuel. I mean, it, it produces a lot of CO2 emissions. I mean, it's not petroleum-based, but it produces a lot of CO2 emissions, so it's not really helping that issue. And it's screwing up with the food supply. So we're doing so many things that make absolutely no sense in the name of controlling the climate, which is um, a completely crazy objective. We can't control the climate. We need to get over it. You know, we yeah. can influence it a tiny bit through land use and whatever, but we cannot control it. And we've got 8 billion people on this planet. Okay, and if we accept that as a given, you know, they're going to have an impact on the planet. And we should work to minimize that in a way that supports human development and prosperity for all people. Yeah. Basically, what I'm getting from this is that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the global warming and our uh, emissions is a problem, but it's not that urgent. Right. Yeah, we don't want to keep dumping stuff into the atmosphere endlessly. I mean, we should try to um, eliminate, in, you know, reduce it as low as reasonably practical on time scales that make sense. I mean, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. And, it's not what, urgent. Yeah. What does that time scale look like? What, what would make more sense? Oh. Over the course of the 21st century, I can imagine, um, forget the whole climate change issue for a minute. 
I mean, wouldn't we like to see um, an improved energy infrastructure with abundant, inexpensive, um, clean electricity and transportation fuels? Everybody would want that, and we need that for the 21st century. Fossil fuels aren't going to last forever. We need to figure out better solutions. But the urgency is misguided and wind and solar are not those solutions. Mm. So I want to touch on one thing before we go to wind and solar. Uh, of course, I'm from Sweden, uh, the country of the great Greta Thunberg. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, she, she's... <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. She, she's not a scientist. She's not... Uh, anything close to a scientist, but she's become this huge um, face, outward face of the climate uh, activism. And she, I recently saw something that I kind of thought was funny. Apparently she posted, I'm sure you've seen it, she posted in 2018 on Twitter some quote from some scientists saying that in five years we're going to have a mass extinction or something to, to those uh, something like that. And then uh, recently, because five years have passed and nothing really happened, she deleted the, the tweet. <laughs> and I've heard that word extinction uh, many, many times when it comes to this uh, topic. And I'll, I'll tell you a short story. So there's someone uh, who I know who is very, very adamant about our uh, climate and, and the, well, a climate activist, I would say who said, where are all the bugs? You know, when, you, when you're driving somewhere, uh, I don't know, in every country, but at least in Sweden. And when she said it, I, I, I thought she had a good point because I remember when I was a kid and we would drive a couple of hours and when we got to where we were going, the windshield would be full of bugs. And that's not the case anymore. It, it's really not. It, it's When I thought about it, it's like a, a huge difference in... And the bugs on my windshield in my car. So I thought maybe she has a good point. But then I also thought, would all the insects move just because it gets a little bit warmer? Or would they die? Like insects live all over the planet, even in the hottest places. So when I thought of that, it, does, it didn't make sense anymore. So so what does this talk about the extinctions of, of species? Okay. and? But, well, all other things being equal... Um... Species have thrived when the temperatures are warm. I mean, ice ages and whatever have been very unfriendly to species. Um, so warm temperature is beneficial to species in terms of um, insects and rodents, small animals and whatever. It's a lot of and birds. Um, a lot of it is land use. Um, we're destroying habitats. And the other issues is chemicals in the environment, you know, pesticides and all sorts of other things in the environment that are, you know, destroying populations of insects, mm-hmm. you know, things that are used for agriculture and household use. And, you know, we're, we're you know, to me, the bigger problem is real pollution, um, mm-hmm. you know, of the air and water and the soil, not warming. I think real pollution and and the sad thing is that the environmental movement has lost sight, (laughs) you know, of real pollution. Mm. Oh, wind farms, you know, kill a bunch of raptors and birds, who cares, you know, and and they've just completely lost sight, you know, of their very valid objectives of even two decades ago. And now they only worry about warming climate change. So the world is upside down. Um, the issue with species is land use and chemicals in the environment, not warming. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the things uh, that I can't make sense of is like, for example, they're telling us we need to stop eating meat and we're going to eat, um, you know, they, they make fake burgers now and we're going to eat vegan diets and things like this. But it, I, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but to grow all that 
whatever you need for your soy burgers or your oats and all of that and then spraying that with pesticides to make it grow faster and bigger and that to me seems like it would be a negative have a negative impact on the environment and the climate if that's the case uh um more than cows just from i'm not you know educated yeah. on the topic but it seems kind of crazy Well, they're, they're, you know, livestock can be good for the ground. You know, livestock is mostly, you know, free-range livestock is mostly good. It's usually, they're usually raised on pretty marginal land, you know, that you can't be used for anything else. And, and if done correctly, livestock farming can actually be good for the environment. Um, meat has many nutritional benefits yeah. and... You know, getting rid of animal products from our diets is probably not going to be real good for human health. Um, so, you know, to me, this doesn't, you know, it makes no sense. Yeah, I agree. So uh, on the wind and solar energy topic, what what are the problems with wind and solar? Okay, the biggest one is land use. Okay, even if, if we were to replace all of our current energy by wind and solar, it would use a huge amount of land. However, we're going to need orders of magnitude more energy because we're electrifying everything, you know, our home heating, auto, our transportation, everything is being electrified. But also we need more electricity um, just for our human advancement, computerize this and robotic that and quantum you know, blockchain, everything. We just need more and more electricity. And there's just no way that the land that we can devote that much land to wind and solar farms to produce that kind of electricity. That's just the land use issue. That's pretty simple. The more serious, there's two other serious ones, is that wind and solar is not dispatchable. You can't call it up on demand. You know, you, you get it when the wind is blowing. You don't get any energy when the wind isn't blowing. And so that's asynchronous. It's intermittent. Sometimes you have it. Sometimes you don't. But because it's so variable, it's, it's asynchronous. And this puts a big stress on the transmission grid. And it makes it much harder to keep the grid stable. So you get blackouts, power outages, all sorts of things. So it's increasing the instability of the grid. Even if you have a huge amount of wind and solar, your grid transmission is going to be unstable. And even with batteries, you know, batteries is still asynchronous. It doesn't really help. Um, hydropower, geothermal, Fossil fuels, nuclear, those are all synchronous. They can keep a grid stable. But wind and solar, you know, can't. So we're just fooling ourselves to think that we can have these 100% wind and solar renewable energy um, systems. It's just not going to work. There's the land use, there's the intermittency, and then there's the asynchronous issue. These are – and a huge amount of materials are required. Have you ever seen on the highway when they're, they have these massive trucks with these big, you know, with the wind turbines and the poles and everything? Huge, absolutely huge. Yeah. Uh, there's some question, especially for the offshore wind, there's some question whether all the materials and the energy that goes into building one of those, whether all that energy will be recovered over the life cycle of that particular wind turbine. And there have been a lot of estimates that say no, you know, that we're actually putting ourselves into energy debt by building these offshore uh, wind turbines. So the construction of those is extremely complex. And the lifetime of the wind turbine isn't nearly as long as one is on land. Whoa. That's so, <laughs> so do, yeah, that just sounds very, if that's the case, then that sounds very, very stupid. Yeah. And, There's but, all but, sorts of stupid here. Yeah, yeah, apparently. But let's say that you are correct on uh, and uh, 
from what I hear, I mean, depends on what side you listen to, but I've heard uh, multiple scientists say the same thing as you, that the wind and solar is very unreliable and, and we just can't, we just can't go 100% on wind and solar. But the, the policy makers and the politicians, but they, they cannot be that stupid. Can um, they, is it they ignorance are. or is it? They've been sold a bill of goods. They've been sold a bill of goods. And the people, and there's a blog post up on my blog right now talking about this, how the the experts who understand energy production and transmission have been ignored in all this and how they've become marginalized. So there's a blog post right now at judithcurry.com that addresses this exact issue. It's political in in the state of new york in the u.s the the law the state politicians have passed these incredibly stringent timetables for going to complete you know wind and solar and i'm i was invited to join a committee on the new york electric reliability council extreme weather committee there's a whole bunch of different committees are examining you know, how would this actually be implemented? These are people from the um, electric utilities and the various regulatory agencies. And I, you know, early days for these committees, but I think people, the engineers, they're starting to realize is that we can't do this without a lot of backup from either natural gas or uh, nuclear power. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. That's interesting. So what about, uh, let's say solar and wind doesn't work, uh, at least not to that extent that they're trying to, to do it. They're, they're useful at the, the 20 to 30% level, but, um, yeah, so we could use them level. still. It's yeah. not complete it, yeah. shit. Yeah. yeah. So what, what are some better solutions then? Because well, I've, I've heard nuclear is probably the cleanest type of energy you can oh get. Oh, yeah. Right? Nuclear is the best option. I mean, in the U.S., we have so many permitting and regulatory roadblocks against nuclear that make no sense. I don't know if it can happen in the U.S., but pretty much every else, everywhere else in the world, you know, a new nuclear power plant can be built in eight years in the U.S. under current regulatory environment. It can't be. But the, but the 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 new nuclear power plant. There's some amazing technologies that are out there, and I think this is, you know, if I look out to the end of the 21st century, I see mostly nuclear, with some geothermal, um, some rooftop solar. What's geothermal? Um, heat. There's a lot of heat deep in the. Okay, when you have a hot spring or or a geyser or something like that, uh-huh. that's geothermal. Oh, energy okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, but, but there's it. a lot of heat deep in the earth that you can tap into mm-hmm. and some places are more active where it's closer to the surface like in the u.s west okay there's a lot of geothermal resources um and but if you dig deep, deep enough pretty much in any part of the world you can tap into geothermal energy so this is, I think, an up and coming. It's, it's used. Iceland has a lot of geothermal energy. There's some geothermal energy in the U.S. West, but this is something that we need to tap into a lot more. I mean, this is dispatchable, synchronous. You know, we, this could be very useful power, but I think, um, I think coal pro, you know, will be gone by maybe 2050 or 2060. I think we may still need oil and natural gas for energy and transportation, mm. you know, for decades to come. Um, but in terms of actual electricity, um, I think nuclear geothermal with some supplemental rooftop solar and maybe wind in certain locations where land use isn't an issue. I think that's a power mix that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it seems to me like the climate activists are ready to do whatever it takes to save the planet. Oh, no, no, no. They they don't even understand. Yeah, go on. (laughs) Except go to nuclear power. So Uh, from my understanding, the 
problem or one of the problems with nuclear is the waste. Uh, oh, it's, it's not even a problem anymore. I mean, it's never oh, no. really been a problem. I mean, you just wrap it up into cement. Finland has developed some very interesting and sophisticated ways of dealing with the nuclear waste. I mean, th this is like, A, it's never been a problem, and there are, and B, there are ways of dealing with it even better. Oh. So that's just, no. Nuclear is far and away the safest power source. Um so Nobody, why are they so so unwilling to look at nuclear? If because nuclear is uh, net, they, they, net they, zero, they if I get it. Big business. I don't know why nuclear has gotten such a bad rap. Um, people were, you know, even with Fukushima and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and all these kind of things. I mean, people didn't really die from this, and and the land around it has recovered, and all of that was like really bad engineering. Um, on those mm. power plants, you know, nothing like what would be today. The number of people who have died from installing wind farms is far and away, <laughs> far much, much larger than, you know, people who have died in any way associated with nuclear power. Oh, I mean, wow. it's just, um, it's just very misplaced risk perception. Um, so if people are starting to come around to nuclear, so hopefully that will accelerate. Yeah, I know over the, I don't know how many years, but they've been shutting down nuclear power plants in, in well, Sweden uh, for a while, which is really weird to me. I think they're opening at least one or two back up. Um, or well, I, I heard some talk about it, but yeah, it, it seems crazy to shut them down if energy oh, is what we need. Yeah, absolutely. You should certainly be, you know, using your existing nuclear power plants. In fact, the, one of the reasons, okay, Germany has lost, you know, they're now up to 44% renewable or something like that. But all the gains they, that they've made from the renewable have been canceled out because they got rid of their um, nuclear power plants and replaced it with coal burners. Okay, so so... Germany has lost all its savings <laughs> from all the wind and solar plants that they put in. So, so this makes no sense. Absolutely makes no sense. But, but how? What do you think? Because to me, it seems. I mean, we can say that the politicians are stupid, that they're ignorant. Yeah. But there must be something. There must be oh, something else. Oh, follow the money. You know, it's complicated. Follow the money. Um, I don't know. It's hard. It's yeah. not simple to untangle why we're in this place right now. But it's, um, I mean, most people, I mean, it's a very complex problem, even for somebody like me to, you know, grapple with all the dimensions, somebody who this is what I spend all day doing for the last 40 years. Um, but for most people, they don't know what to think. They, they don't know what to think because, it's it's complex. They hear so many different things from so many different directions. And that's why in my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, I try to lay it out, you know, in a middle of the road way to, you know, what don't we know, how we've mischaracterized the risk and how we should think about the dangers, how we sh should think about addressing the risk given the uncertainty and all this kind of thing. So, um it's not simple. They don't call this a wicked problem for nothing. It is indeed a wicked problem. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the problem that I have with things like this is that when when they start changing policies and making new rules and new laws and they want to have these... Um, I even read about something, apparently it's from that Green New Deal thing. They were talking about climate lockdowns, which, you know... As soon as I hear something like they're trying to change something that's going to affect me directly, I I always feel like, well, it, in that case, if you're going to tell me that I can't drive X amount of miles or I can't do this or can't do that, the burden of proof is on you first. Okay. Well, and this is the, the thing that uh, is a yeah. conundrum to me because anytime I ask a climate activist, for, this is part uh, of it. It's, it's a totalitarian. It's a, it, it's a world. Okay, if you go back to the 1980s, the UN Environmental Program, their goal was non-governmental um, world 
controlled by the UN. They were looking for this. Mm-hmm. And they saw climate as the ideal vehicle for seizing on this. Um, you know, people want control. They want control. They want power. And this is a vehicle that they, if you can scare people, you can control them. So this is part of what's going on. Um, yeah. Um, I have to go in a few minutes. I hope yeah, we can wrap yeah. up. Yeah, okay. Of course. Of course. Yes. It's, uh, we'll go right away. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. I think your message is very important, especially when you think about, we need both sides of the argument to make any kind of sense of, of, of this and, and all uh, things. And I always, like I said in the beginning, get suspicious when there's something that we can't question. And I really appreciate people like you who can show us a, a different side to, to the topic. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.